because they're never going to make another laptop again. So they'll, they'll, they're they're going to make one in like a couple they're months. Not get, no, that's what they keep saying, and it's never happening because Taiwan is underwater. Apple will never make another computer again. No, they won't. No computers. It's everything is going to be Game Boys from now that's on. That's right. Like we're just going to do everything on like that Austin Powers game that turned your Game Boy into a PDA. Oh yeah. That's going to be the future of computing. Welcome to my secret I underground layer. No, no, no. There were two Austin Powers games that yeah. take, that came out at the same time. One was Welcome to My Underground Lair and then the other one was Oh Behave. And Obehave was the 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 personal assistant. And then the other one was DOS, right? Aren't the, you so glad that I am here to remind you about these things? Because it was the, the, the Dr. Evil one was DOS. And then the other one was like a Windows. Oh, I thought thing. the Underground Lair was like a game where you'd like, I don't know, manage the base or something. No, 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 it is. Because like they were around. they were they were both simulations of the respective computers of Austin Powers and uh, Dr. Evil. That is so high concept. Yeah. The Austin Obehave was like, you are using Austin Powers' computer and welcome to my secret evil lair was you are using Dr. Evil's computer. I do remember. Maybe that. it's maybe it's like punch cards. Uh, like maybe. You have to punch the holes in the cards. and the, Maybe you know. she's born with it. Yeah. Or... Maybe she is. Like, th that's the thing is people want to complete the thought and make it something else. But really, maybe right. she is just born with it. Sometimes. Maybe she is. Sometimes and, and you are. Yeah. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, the first and only podcast recorded entirely on Game Boy. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. And today we are going to be talking about uh, a video game, as we often seem to on this podcast. And specifically, yeah. the game that we are talking about today is a little game called Prey. P-R-E-Y. Like the Mantis. Right. Much like the Mantis, Prey is a roller coaster at Cedar Point. Uh, that's a, that's a <laughs> fucking joke. Um, it is, to me, an example of a game that gets so much right and nevertheless failed on a number of things, both, both I think, on its own terms and commercially. Um, and, and so yeah. what I would yeah. like to talk about today is what it looks like when you have any sort of a creation and in this case a game that creates a really high expectation for itself tries to be something interesting tries to be something that's revolutionary and doesn't quite stick the landing and and, and what that ends up looking like you know well prey was born in ambition um it started out as a doom clone back in the days when we just called fps's doom clones and their big thing at the time that they were making it, that it was going to have portals, like actual portals that not only you can just walk straight through, but you can move them, right? You can't even move them in portal. And so Prey was started by 3D Realms, who had done Wolfenstein 3D. They did Duke Nukem. Duke. Blow it out yep. your ass. Well, actually. I've got balls of steel. I, I've I got also have balls, balls of steel. steel. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm um, here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, <laughs> and I'm all so out of ass. 
the interesting thing. I've got balls um, of steel. <laughs> I remember playing the original Prey, and that was part of the reason why when they announced the new one, yeah. that I was interested in the idea of them continuing this franchise. Well, and and the yeah, the finished product cuz Prey comes out in 2006 for the Six. Xbox 360. It's one of those early games like like Condemned Criminal Origins that actually sold very well at the time. We just don't talk about them that much these days. Right. And Prey had you walking around a big ball with like gravity and of course portals that you could walk there you like could walk into a room there'd be a little box You'd walk into a portal on the other side. You'd actually be in the box after that. And you'd be smaller and then you could see the aliens walking around. They're huge, really incredible stuff. The gameplay mechanics of Prey definitely did some stuff that not very many games had done before. The portaling stuff, mm-hmm. the uh, way that you could walk around on surfaces and, and there would be paths that would start flat. But then you could like continue walking up the, lo- uh, the wall as long as you stayed on the path. And it is very mm-hmm. much a product of its time. Uh, you know, 2006, yeah. Doom 3 had come out two years before that. This game is also built on id Tech 4, same engine. Okay. There, there's also a lot of commonalities with Half-Life 2. You've got these aliens who are trying mm-hmm. to do like mm-hmm. scary, weird biological experiments on humans or whatever. Naturally, you are the <laughs> only one who can stop it. Um, the, the thing that also makes Prey an interesting or distinctive game, I think, beyond that in the, in the mechanics is of course the fact that the protagonist is uh, a native american man and i to the best right. of my knowledge the only actual like indigenous american who has been the protagonist in maybe any game that i can think of in terms of like mainstream games. yeah aside from yeah some small game or or something really old that's probably extremely racist or something and th- this game started out when when this was still being worked on by 3D Realms in like late 90s or 2000, they eventually had to ditch it because the portal thing just wasn't working on the hardware they had at the time. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can find where they have reflective surfaces. The main character at that time was just nebulously Native American and his name was Talon Brave. Uh, Not great. But once they get to this, you get this, this uh, it's this guy and it's just like every, <laughs> every horrible trope that exists in American yeah. popular culture about, about, uh, native people is, is, is in here, you know? So when we get to this 360 version, they get a little bit more specific. He's Cherokee. His name is Tommy. He's played by Michael Gray Eyes. And he actually offered a lot of feedback and he said people always took it. They listened to him, but there's still some stuff in there that's like, Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Like the, <laughs> between those parts, deep, between those parts with the alien world, uh, your your protagonist goes on these fucking vision quests or whatever, and uh, has. Well, it's uh, like every time you die, you end up in like the spirit world, and you have a bow and arrow, and you kind of have to right, fight yeah, your way and, back and, to being and, alive. And then, and you also you yeah. also have like a a, a a spirit animal, and and you take the bow and arrow, yeah. and you know the, your animal guides you through, and then you can actually use your bow and arrow against the aliens, um, and it does more damage than the conventional weapons. And there's a part, there's a part in the sequence where it's like, he's like, I fought, but I already fought. I already fought in the war because that's part of his uh, backstory. He's a vet. He's a veteran. Yeah. And uh, his, his uh, fucking grandpa in the sky or whatever is like, you fought the white man with white man's weapons. And he's like, come on, man. (sighs) So anyway, 
problematic yeah. but interesting game that did some stuff that not very many games had done before and 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 I played a bit of it back in the day again which is why I think yeah. it was interesting to me when then it was like okay no prey is coming back because then what happened prey was ends immediately setting up a sequel like literally says in big titles fading out prey will continue and they immediately start working on a sequel and they work on it for a long time there's a trailer that comes right. out in 20 12 that is zero gameplay. Yeah, yeah. And it's that, like the last that, that Beyond Good and Evil trailer. Interesting, and it though. Lo- but it's a cool concept. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're like a bounty hunter in Coruscant. Uh, like, yeah, you're like a space marine and you wake up on an alien planet and, and now you're a bounty hunter. And it's definitely like, yeah. it honestly is like, it looks like a Star Wars. So 3D Realms, of course, is like, they really struggled. Duke Nukem Forever just never materializes. Prey 2 doesn't materialize. Eventually they dissolve and then they get sort of most of their stuff gets bought up by Bethesda. Like they didn't get I'm too far. Sure. Like it, it's mm-hmm. not a complete game, but there yeah. is some footage that's out there. Just a little yeah. bit of what the game would have looked like. But yeah, I mean, Human Head couldn't get stuff delivered. And in general, 3D Realms was just a complete shit yeah. show around this time. And so what ended up happening was. Uh, ZeniMax had been, again, paying Human Head for a while to continue developing this. It just wasn't working. So they shit-canned the whole yeah. thing in 2014 and then gave the yeah. concept over to Arcane instead. And of course, Arcane mm-hmm. had uh, been working on a number of things and, and I think it just released Dishonored right around that. Some of that, just put a pin in that information because that'll be important after we get through the discussion of the game itself. So this project then, the new version of Prey, is headed up by Rafael Colantonio. So this guy is like a a real industry vet. Um, He was involved in Arcane going all the way back, and he basically wants to create a game Mm -hmm. that is a spiritual successor to all of those games that he loved most. And of course... He wants to make a spiritual successor to Prey, the game he loves most. Right? Right? That's what's going to happen? <laughs> exactly. The game he loves. Prey. The strange, <laughs> nebulously defined Doom 3 clone released circa 2006. No, I mean, honestly, the only thing that stays from w- what Prey is as originally conceived is the fact that the game starts with you looking in a mirror and you pick up a wrench. That's mm-hmm. literally the only commonalities that this game has with the original. The key thing of this game, then, the the, the, the mechanic that makes it... There, there's a couple of mechanics that make it interesting, but probably the most memorable one, uh, and the one that like is like pops out at you from the very beginning, is this concept of what the game calls the looking glass. And the looking glass is mm-hmm. basically, you are able to look through this pane of glass... And on the other side, you can see what looks like a different world. It's basically a real-time mechanic that's very cool that I haven't seen done anywhere yeah. else, and I have no idea how they did it. It's so cool. Let's talk about uh, how you first discover the looking glass. Oh, God, yeah. This is spoilers, by the way. Everything from here on out is spoilers. Yeah, this is going to be major spoilers, and it's weird to say that for something that constitutes the very first part of the game. But, you know, if you go into it just knowing it's a game about being on a space station with aliens, this beginning will still surprise you. It's it's one of the best openings to any game. Unbelievably cool. So you, the game starts, yeah. you wake up, Good morning, Morgan. Your character's name is Morgan Yu. Why you? You're part of the family that owns 
this really, really advanced space research facility of some sort. It's a private company that owns a space station that orbits the moon. How appropriate is it that we're recording this on the day that Richard Branson did not go into space? but is saying that he did <laughs> 50 miles up does not fucking count. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's <clears throat> it's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. <laughs> so you wake up and uh, you put on your suit and you go out and uh, you go up the elevator uh, to the rooftop of your building. You hop in a helicopter up there. The helicopter takes you across uh, basically San Francisco uh, to the rooftop deck of your office building and once you take the elevator also, i'm a big sucker for these kinds of credits where you're flying in the helicopter right, and you yeah. just see the main credits the music is fantastic and you see the credits sort of embedded in the buildings and on the bridge so then you get to the rooftop of the building on the rooftop of the building of course is the logo of the game it says prey which is again kind of fun um but then you hop off the helicopter and you go into the room where your brother is, your brother Alex. Worth noting here that Alex is played by Benedict Wong. He does, a, I think, a great job in this game. I really does one of the best loved. acting jobs I've ever experienced in any video game at all. He is an incredibly uh, complex, three-dimensional character, and that doesn't necessarily come out directly in the writing, but it does come out fully in Benedict Wong's performance. And right out of the gate, you're just yep. taken in by his charisma. He, his charisma and also how clear it is that like this guy has a secret and, and you're not sure what the secret is. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you want to trust him immediately because his countenance is such that like this seems like a trustworthy guy. But on the other hand, he's so clearly hiding something. You really are constantly wondering, like, can I actually trust this guy? What what are the interests that he has uh, at heart? And can I go along with him? So anyway, you talk to your brother. Your brother's like, hey, Morgan, uh, you know, we are so happy to have you here. Uh, we're going to do great things. Then Morgan uh, goes or you go into these test chambers where you talk to a uh, doctor who, by the way, is the same voice actor who did Garrett in the Thief games. I don't know if you were aware of that, yep, but yep. Um, and he's so fucking yep. good. These little test rooms are just like pick up objects, hide behind a thing, uh, fill out a quiz and you're doing it all right, but every time you do it, they, they sound extremely concerned. <laughs> they sound so upset. He's like, hide in the room, and there's nothing in that room except for a chair. So you just crouch behind the chair, and he's like, is he is he hiding behind the chair? I'm like, what the fuck else am I supposed to do? What's going on here? Prey is a game that's designed to be played through multiple times. And the first playthrough there are a lot of things that you don't quite understand why it's happening, the way that the sequence is set up. Mm -hmm. But on the second playthrough, you realize, oh, and again, big old spoiler mm -hmm. alert, the reason that it's weird that it's hiding behind the chair is he should have been able to turn into the chair. So once you get to the end of the test, you see this little thing kind of slither if you're paying attention, and then all of a sudden it appears that you've watched everyone die. Then you wake up the next morning, your alarm right. says the same thing, your TV says it's the same date, you look out your huge windows on uh, the one side of your room, everything is still bright and sunny. Your door out to the balcony is still locked. Your bathroom looks exactly the same. All the stuff on your counters hasn't changed. So you go back out into the hallway. There was someone who was repairing something out in the hallway, and now they're just fucking dead. <laughs> Their body is mutilated, 
and there's a wrench next to them, that classic sort of immersive sim thing. Now you have a wrench. And the first thing that goes to your mind, because also your elevator, your elevator isn't there. Um, it's just not there. So you take the wrench and you're like, well, I, that door is locked. I'm going to smash through it. And you smash through that glass looking out over the, the skyline of San Francisco and there's just a concrete wall and some pipes behind and your lights shining so you in these lights immediately get to see these two different realities layered on top of each other in what I can only describe as like actual wizardry. It completely blew me away. They had to work so hard to get this moment to work because yeah. you have to guide the player into smashing the window, which is not as easy as it would sound. Because what have you done, right? Every time they had someone new start working for them, they had them test that beginning of the game to see what they would do and see if they would figure out that you have to take the wrench and break the window and walk through it. It is a moment that is very much scripted in a game that is otherwise mm -hmm. fairly unscripted. Like there, there are certainly scenes yeah. that happen, you know, and there are events that take place. But it's not like most modern FPSs where you are largely on rails, certain things happen at certain times, and mm -hmm. then, you know, immediately control is wrested away from you because you have to watch this fucking cutscene. Or in the case of, like, the Half-Life games, you have to sit there while things happen around you, which is really just a cutscene that you are right. able to move around <laughs> during. Um, yeah. Yeah. Prey doesn't play that way, uh, really, beyond this first scene, because, again, the idea of this game was to be a throwback to games like System Shock 2 and Thief, those classic games developed by Looking Glass Studios, which is also why they called it the yep. Looking Glass. It's a, a, a tribute to that. The game allows you to play it in pretty much whatever way you want, because once you're out there, the, right. one of the very first things that you see is this little prompt pops up that says, play it your way. And, and this is like the last little ha bit of <laughs> hand-holding that it does. It says... Just a couple hints, basically. It's like you can try to find the key card or you can try to find an alternate route yep. or you can smash something with your wrench. And from that point on, it's basically like, hey, have fun. The game really does take a step back and say, yeah, you can get here if you really think about it enough. And then as you make your way through the game, you, of course, come across the glue cannon, which is that entire philosophy made perfect. The glue cannon or the glue gun is this big old cylindrical cannon that you can basically use to shoot these big blobs of white solid glue. All of these Typhon, which are these aliens, they're running around. They have the ability to mimic objects. It actually bogs these aliens down in a layer of thick glue. But the other thing that you can do with the cannon is you can use it to add to the environment around because you can climb on. It. And so you can use it to create bridges. You can use it to put out fires. It's this incredibly versatile thing yeah. that allows you to take the environmental hazards that the developers and the designers have put into the world for you to play and with. And you can really think way outside the box with it. I, I always kind of forgot, oh yeah, I could use the glue cannon to make a staircase, right? You just make a ramp along the wall and you can jump up that way. You can skip all sorts of shit that way. You can even fire the glue cannon behind boxes. You have a strength attribute that you can upgrade so you can pick up larger and larger boxes but there are some doors that are blocked by them where you could just fire the glue cannon between the wall and the box and the box will fall and you can make your way through i never tried doing that that's so cool i didn't know that i watched someone do it in a video and i thought holy shit what the fuck 
And and of course you can you can level certain things up in different ways as well. So you can learn to pick up boxes very early. You can learn to hack very early, and that's using neuromods, which right. of course are you, you you see those same sorts of things in all sorts of other immersive sims, but you don't see them in other games being advertised using the face of Daisy Prince. So this is the only video game in human history, to my knowledge, that features the face of Hal Prince's daughter. Wait, what? Yeah. Daisy Prince. It's even in the materials in the game where they say they they made the likeness of those Neuromod ads, the woman with the yeah. the the hair holding up the Neuromod. That's that's Daisy Prince. Wait, that's that's her face. That's absolutely wild. <laughs> um, it's such a it's such a weird little thing that not only did they just like you can just use anyone's face for a reference and people do it all the time, but they actually like explicitly say yes, that's Daisy Prince's likeness. <laughs> to what end? That's so weird. <laughs> To the end of it, it's fuck you. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it's it's such a weird thing, and it shows up just in this one piece. There's a lot of funny alternate history stuff that's also like, oh okay, but this isn't even the alternate history stuff. It's just this is Daisy Prince now. Daisy Prince is in this game. This is so clearly a passion project. <laughs> um, going all uh-huh. the way from the top of like the the music in it. The, a lot of those songs are, was like Raphael Colantonio being like. Hey, I want to. I want to also do some songs. I'm gonna put some those songs. His in songs. Game. So all of the uh, ambient and incidental music is Mick Gordon. Oh, okay. Mick Gordon is also the guy who did the soundtrack for uh, Doom 2016. But the okay. like pop songs, like the the one the one that's the the song that plays in the in the in the club. And now it's time to beat the mind. <laughs> that's those are those are Rafael <laughs> Colantonio originals. That's so it's good. It's a game where the gameplay and the level design tells most of the story. Yes, there are audio logs yeah. along the way that you can pick up and listen to. Yes, there's a shitload of emails that you can read through. But the primary storytelling is just looking at this world that exists. Right. And seeing what it looks like, going out into like the sort of uh, wreck area, coming across a table where there's still character yeah. sheets from a tabletop game. And the the foam dart game. Yes. You know, there's, yeah, there's all this stuff where these people are playing this role-playing game, but then they're also kind of bringing it in the real world by playing a game of assassin. And so you find these crossbows everywhere that are completely useless in combat, but do actually have some use in accessing computers that you can't otherwise reach. Um, again, praise about finding all of these permutations of things that that go this way and that. And so that you can have three or four different solutions to the exact same problem. But all of it is tied into this really endearing story about this group of people who crew the the space station. And you do meet, well, you meet, you meet one of them. Yeah, they're not all dead. They made this world that feels so real and so lived in. Um, there's the snowman yeah. that they made out of, of, of glue and his name is gluey McGlue face. Oh, yeah. You can whack him and, and there's actually a couple things hidden inside the glue, but yeah, every little stash. Cause they, they have these stashes where it's like, if you do find a way onto some impossible surface and find this material, there's always a story attached to how that stash got there's, there. Some of them are cute and funny. Some of them are mm-hmm. like really thoughtful. Some of them are absolutely tragic. Some of them are gruesome. It, it, it's right. all over the place, but it's such strong storytelling through level design. I mean, which, with, with, without giving it away, you, you uncover some voice logs from a character named Danielle Show that starts to sort of track this, the progression of this relationship that she has with another woman on the ship that is incredibly tragic and heartbreaking, of course, because, you know, everyone's dead and, um, and I, but Danielle's show ends up being a little bit more important as you go along. And also, if you 
flip the first and last name around, you get Show Dan. Yeah, that, that blew my mind when I realized Danielle yeah, Show is Show Dan. Well, so this is drawing from system. I mean, essentially, this game is them making System Shock Three. That's what they wanted to make. They couldn't get the name System Shock 3. Bethesda is like, well, what if you make something called Prey? We don't want you to make something with an original title with no IP attached to it. That wouldn't sell well. Like Dishonored, which sold, oh, uh, extremely well. Well, never mind. But still, we're going to call this one Prey, which everyone has kind of forgotten about. Or Deathloop, which is going to (laughs) sell extremely well. Right. Uh, You know, whatever. I do think that we should also take just a moment to talk a little bit about the things in this game that are absolutely fucking infuriating because it is an immersive sim and (laughs) there are certain things about the immersive sim genre that you sort of learn to love if you've played these games but if you haven't are absolutely infuriating so combat we can definitely talk about combat which is which is one portion of a much bigger problem which is that you can build yourself into a corner this is a bigger problem you can build yourself into a corner and and the main thing is that the the scrubs the the low level typhon is that uh, they're small, which means that those great like scary moments where they transform right in front of your eyes. Sometimes you don't see it happen. Sometimes they'll just scurry past you, and you won't even like have any sense that they were by you. And it makes fighting a group of them just not not very fun. <laughs> especially if you're playing on a harder mode. Right, unless you, again, have a certain specific loadout. This goes back to the problem of building yourself into a corner. If you build yourself out using the neuromods, and in-game the neuromods are basically uh, something that you can use to give yourself additional abilities, and in the lore of the game, it is something that is basically added, that you are able to record skills or abilities into these neuromods, And then what the neuromod does is you inject it directly into your brain through your eyeball. Uh And by doing so, you now have this new ability. And the thing that you have been working on, and you, by you, I mean the character Morgan Yu, has been working on, along with your brother Alex, is recording Typhon abilities into neuromods. So you're basically crossing the streams. You're saying we should see if we can actually encode this alien behavior into our own DNA, which is a particularly scary proposition, especially given that as we come to learn in the game, the moment that a neuromod is removed from your brain, which can be done, you forget everything that has happened between when you receive the neuromod and uh, anything which is why Morgan keeps waking up in his apartment day after day in this simulation that he himself has set up um, and doesn't remember what happened the day before because they're putting in new neuromod testing that out taking it out again and memory wiped and then it's it's also implied that if you do this frequently you start to lose long-term memory functions as well right your your personality starts to change and and that's of course what's happened to Morgan because you wake up in the game is a very different kind of Morgan as someone who has a mission and it's a mission against the mission of the Talos of the, the, the space station and against your brother and your right. parents who are the shareholders to go back to the point of the neuromods, um, because of the fact that you have the ability to inject yourself with lots of different abilities, some of which are human abilities, like you can get very good at guns or you can get very good at hacking or you can get very good at being alive. Being alive. Um, you also have the ability to inject these uh, Typhon abilities into yourself. So you have the ability to uh, mimic objects. You can have the ability to 
uh, mimic entire like defense turrets and stuff like that. You can become a turret mm -hmm. and shoot guys, which is really fun. Um, you can develop the ability to set a radius on fire or throw a bunch of guys up into the air at the same time. Mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of neuromods that give you the ability to fight lots of guys at the same time effectively. But if you don't get those neuromods or if you do the fucking thing that I did, yeah. which was to play an all human purely stealth build all the way through. That's what I did too. Yep. The game kind of seems like it's it wants you not to use those neuromods. And it seems to push the idea that there will be some aspect of the story that will be different at the end. And to put it very bluntly, the ending is always the same. And it's always disappointing. I mean, it, there, there's slight differences that can happen in the ending, but yeah. Yeah. There, there are different things that you can do in the second to last moments or the couple of hours before you reach the end. But the final moment is always, and I feel like spoiling this, it is a spoiler, does not ruin the other aspects of the game story that we're not going into because it's so different from everything else. So you wake up at the end of the game, having escaped the Talos or destroyed the Talos or whatever, and you have been in a test the whole time. And your brother is there, and a bunch of robots are there, and they go through each moral decision you made as you just sit in this chair. And Because you are not actually Morgan, you are <laughs> a Typhon that they have tried to transform into Morgan using various... Using Neuromods. You've, they've used human Neuromods. So they're reversing what they did with Morgan back when Morgan was alive, I guess. And if you if you made a bunch of bad moral decisions, I don't know how many, I guess Alex just kills you in your chair. And then if you didn't, then they're like, oh, by the way, the world has been taken over by the Typhon. Are you going to help us? And you can say, yes, I'll help you. Or you can kill him for some reason. Those last moments are very disappointing. And I think you you actually have a better experience in the game if you know going in that the, the last few minutes are just not going to be great. It wouldn't be an immersive sim if it didn't have a dog shit ending. Like that's that that is the thing. Again, you you haven't played Shock 2, but I know in, in I have System Shock 2, this incredible awesome story has been building and building and building and you go into uh Shodan's memory actually. Shodan starts rearranging the entirety of the station that you're on to recall events in her memory and for a while you actually walk around in the world of the first game which is so fucking cool but then the whole thing ends with you finding shodan in the middle of all of this she gives you a pitch that's like you know join me join me and we'll change the world together or whatever the hell and then and then your character uh -huh. goes nah and throws a grenade at her <laughs> what system shocks 2's ending is so bad that it's good because it's just so totally yeah. Uh, disjunct from the rest of the thing. Whereas I think that Prey's ending is just, it's just, I get what they were trying to do, but also yeah. I think that part of the problem is that the game, this is the other point, like they very clearly yeah. ran out of time toward the end of development and they had yeah. to ship. This is the same thing with like the first Bioshock having a bad ending is you, you tend to get to endings last because you want to focus on the things people actually play. And there's only a certain number of people who are actually going to finish your game. And so the last moments of a game are always going to get a little bit less attention um, than the earlier moments. 
and, and like, I wouldn't necessarily hate the idea of it all being a simulation being present. There are a couple hints of it. There's like a bad ending you do that the game doesn't even count as an ending. It just gives you a game over where you just jump in Alex's pod at the top and leave the, the station on its own way before you do any of the late game stuff where you get like a little voice hint that there's a simulation. But in that way, it's just sort of like Total Recall, right? If you watch Total Recall, you can be like, oh, so this whole thing was in the the experience that he purchased and now he's getting out as the screen fades to white but the movie never says oh by the way he's been in the chair the whole time it's a lot more interesting when you can kind of play a little game with it and take what you want but when the, the story just lays it out oh by the way this was all a test you just want to say yeah sucks to you yeah my man and it's a shame because like uh, one of my favorite elements of the story without going really into detail is when you actually meet Alex in the station and the game doesn't say what you thought about Alex was wrong the game has done a very good job setting up what Alex and Morgan was doing and how fucked up it is and how it has killed everyone on here and then Alex has to make his pitch for you for what he wants you to do and again this is Benedict Wong fucking killing in this moment he has this incredible warmth and affection as he is giving you this and he's he's like he's exhausted he's tired but you can see that he really genuinely believes in something more than just his profit motive he believes that this is something that will solve the problem and you can choose what you want to do with him the game does not force you to go along with him but he makes his case and he makes the case very very well i think so something that i uh, that really struck me about that. Ultimately, the choice that you end up having to make is, yeah, do you go along with Alex's plan or do you go your own way? Which, again, is a plan yeah. that Morgan has been trying to put together between resets uh, on the Neuromod. So, yeah, the pitch that he gives is, yes, it's all about, like, look at what we could do for the world. And at this point, because of the way that the levels are built and designed and because of the gameplay you understand just how ethically atrocious it is what they're doing. And yet there yeah. is still a part of you that's like, but maybe just maybe the, or the ends maybe don't exactly justify the means. But on the other hand, like, yeah, there is some good stuff. And, and it's to me, then this is an immediate and very obvious. And I think it was written this way on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's an analog to tech. It is an analog to the way that the tech yeah. industry works now. Tech is destroying the world, yeah. taking personal information, making it a readily accessible uh, <laughs> form of monetization, right. doing very, very little, and in some cases, accelerating the collapse of our climate. And yet, there's this dream of what it could be if only we stuck to the plan a little bit yeah. longer. Well, and there and there's, of course, the question of like, can you solve tech through the existing systems that are there? Because Morgan has the means of destroying everything in in prey. You do not have the means of destroying what's there. Is there a way to somehow get into that? And, and actually turn things around to the values that people really thought they had a decade or two decades ago when they were starting to make these things. And it's a, it's a compelling question. And again, the game gives you a character with the means to just say, no, it's all gone, really makes you actually ask that question. Is this the, the more correct solution or, or is it not? Is there something that can be done within 
this this system. There's also a point, a couple points throughout the game where you're prompted on a computer questions that are actual trolley problems. And the art style of this game is so cool, too. It's not cell shaded, but it is very cartoony. The character models have great exaggerated features. So every body that you come across has this unique personality to it. And again, Prey is also like as far as immersive sims go, it's very smooth. It's not super buggy. It's worth noting, though, that around bugginess, a lot of that is stuff that was patched after release. And going back to the point about like right, right. why Prey didn't do so well right out the gate. I've, I've played um, a lot of uh, games that were very buggy on release, and I've played them many years later, like Fallout New Vegas, which is a great game. And holy shit. <laughs> They're still such a fucking mess. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they, they definitely like were able to patch it. Um, it, it. But but because it was released in an unfinished state and because they had to patch out most of those bugs after release, the initial yeah. reviews that the game got were not great. Even people who enjoyed the game, IGN gave it a four out of ten because the reviewer was literally unable to finish. Uh, there was a game bl- blocking out of bug 10. that prevented the reviewer from being able to finish the game. And so it's like, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but I, it's not like I couldn't beat the game. Uh, It's too buggy for me to recommend it. And I think later they uh, up the review score to like a seven or an eight or something like that. But, Oh, okay. I was like, I hadn't seen that on the, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So the, the thing is, right. So the game wasn't done when, when it was released. So they couldn't put out pre-release copies because they were patching literally probably right up until release day. Um, yeah. So then that means that the uh, media outlets weren't able to get reviews out ahead of time, which meant, of course, that then once the game was released, they had to immediately start playing as quickly as possible. And Prey is not a game that is going to be fun or interesting if you feel like you have to just beeline your way through it. The fun of it comes from the discovery yeah. and playing with the tools of this in the systems of the game and exploring these weird little secrets. I mean... On my second playthrough, yeah. I discovered so much stuff that I didn't know was there in my first playthrough. And I bet on the third one, I'd still discover mm-hmm. even more. And you still didn't even discover the fact that that was Daisy Prince. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, you gorgeous babes and babettes? The name's Duke Nukem, and I've got balls of steel. But even Duke Nukem gets scared sometimes. What scares Duke Nukem, you ask? Well, nobody... Nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, I guess the fact that anyone might actually know me. Like, see the real Dukem Snookum Nukem. I know that I put on a big show with my big guns and my big boy voice, but sometimes I really do just want to chew bubblegum, you know? There's only so much ass a man can kick without someone to share it with. Sometimes I just sit out on the lake. There's a little lake out behind my mansion that's shaped like a giant pair of bazongas. And I feed the ducks little pieces of bread. And I get this image of me, Duke Nukem, as a 70-year-old man, 
just still out behind his house feeding the descendants of these same ducks. The world changes all the time. Why can't Duke Nukem? Why can't Duke Nukem? Bazooka Bubblegum. Just chew it. Yeah, so this this brings us very well into um why why did Prey not succeed? Why is it this game that people kind of didn't really play or know about? And even I, I I felt like I was more aware of it than most people and I didn't really know much about it at all. I thought it was a survival horror game with RPG elements. Um yeah. it, but to get to that story about why it failed um, why the publicity wasn't great. We first have to talk about Kotaku. This will make sense. There is a way that this this game actually intersects directly with with Gamergate. Hell yeah, dude! That becomes important to like the way it's publicized. All right. So uh, I'm not going to go into like a history of Kotaku. At some point, we we should talk about that. There's a lot to talk about just on the whole like history of what Kotaku is and what it has represented, where it has failed. Um, where it's been kind of cool, where it's been awful. Um, but we're just going to talk about its relationship with Bethesda. So Kotaku has been blacklisted by a number of companies in the way that other pieces of gaming press have not. The first time was when they released leaked information about PlayStation Home, like a month before Sony was supposed to announce it. And they were just like, yeah, we're going to blacklist you now. And Brian Crescenti wrote a thing like, hey, Sony's going to blacklist us now. And Sony immediately walked that back. I even remember PlayStation Home. So you could like build a little house that you had a, an online avatar could live in. You could get merch related to your games, you know, furniture. You could go to these different public places like a bowling alley. But you, okay, so this is just this is just Microsoft Bob. Yeah, you had to stand in line to bowl. Like if there were too many people bowling, you had to wait for them to finish up in order to bowl in a digital uh, space. To me, that sounds very immersive. And everything cost money. Sounds like an immersive simulation. So, like, it was a, like a lot of things related to the PlayStation 3. There was a lot of hype before it came out, and none of it was really true. And then they got mad about it, and then they were like, nah, whatever. That was their first, like little blacklist moment about four years into the site existing. Then in April of 2013, Kotaku starts getting some reports from within the production team for Doom 4, right? Which eventually gets completely scrapped and replaced with what became Doom 2016. It said Doom 4 was basically dead in the water. Uh, They had built a few levels. The levels weren't good. It just wasn't going anywhere Everyone was leaving and that that rankled a few feathers because it was like it was leaked info. It was coming from some anonymous source from within. Then in May of 2013, just a month later, Jason Schreier got some leaks about Prey 2. And it was clear that there was a lot of stuff there. Like we said, with the trailer, there were a lot of very clear concepts for what they wanted that game to be. And it is nothing like what what is there now. So what their email showed was that Arcane was coming up. And they were going to be using that IP to make a system shop follow up. There was a leaked email where the director literally just says, yeah, we're, we're making a new system shop game, but we're calling it Prey. 
<laughs> like, just think that you are that making was, that was Rafael Antonio right? that said that. Mm-hmm. Bethesda is then like, no, this is not true. They they do these interviews. Um, they talk to Rock Paper Shotgun. IGN re-reports what they talked to Rock Paper Shotgun about, and they're like, no, Arcane is not making Prey Two. Which I guess technically, yeah, Arcane didn't make Prey Two. I mean, yeah, it's like that's not that's not not true, yeah, right? Because they weren't making Prey Two. They threw Prey Two in the trash and made a brand new game. They made System Shock Three. <laughs> So Schreier then reports a couple months later on that issue using new emails that are still getting leaked to him from someone in Arcane, uh, including an email that Colantonio sent to the Prey team saying, quote, Now that the news is out, we'll be contacted by press sneak fucks who will want to know more. Please don't answer to any of their requests. Uh, <laughs> that works. <laughs> and, um, and then Bethesda... Not explicitly the way that Sony had done. Like, Sony emailed and was like, you're on our blacklist now. Bethesda just decides they're never going to give Kotaku anything again. Not invite them to their press events. Not give them early uh, releases of games so that they can review them. And so in November of 2015, Fallout 4 comes out. Kotaku, of course, had no access to that because Kotaku had also leaked that Fallout 4 existed a little bit between the, the Prey incident and and the time that Fallout 4 was released. They're like, oh yeah, it exists. It'll be set in Boston. And this is funny because they actually got the information from a casting call. So someone sent them the casting call information. These aren't like callback things. This is for the basic audition. They had sides that started with the opening monologue, which uses War, War Never Changes as its opening. And it's really clear that it's a Fallout game if you are looking for that. And Fallout 4 specifically becomes this point of contention when the voice actors went on strike in the video game industry um, because most of the people working on Fallout 4 had no idea that they were working on Fallout 4 all the way through the game. The studio never told them what project they were working on, even though Kotaku ends up figuring it out from their more public casting documents. So even Keith Farley, who played one of the main villains of Fallout 4, did not know until the game was getting released that he was working on Fallout 4. And if you've played Fallout 4, which I have played some of it, um, you can tell that cast is stacked. It's great voice actors from top to bottom, and their performances are bad because they don't have the materials at their disposal to know what's actually going on as they say their lines. Oh, yeah. Well, and I know that that can be a problem in games generally. Right, and they're union voice actors. Like, these are people who are better than anybody else at keeping secrets. They work on commercials. They work on new releases of books. They work on cartoons with major fan bases. They're really good at keeping secrets, and they are being and they were being left in the dark. New union negotiations allow people to know what the fuck game they're working on after they get cast. Well, that's good. Which should, be, should have been the standard from the beginning. But Bethesda, of course, is just always doing this kind of thing. They're always like aiming for secrecy to the point where it actually even hurts their their product instead of helping the product it, in terms of sales, even not just in terms of, you know, art or whatever. So like they, they just decide to treat every actor as though they're David Prowse. Kotaku does a, an article where they talk about the blacklist that they're on. They've also been blacklisted by Ubisoft because they had leaked that one of the Assassin's Creed games was going to be set in London before it happened. 
um, which gets them a lot of ire, right? Gamergate is in like full swing by 2015. People just hate Kotaku on principle, right? Gamergate was built around a Kotaku article about Depression Quest, and then it has just like spiraled out of this thing where they want their gaming journalism to be ethical and not beholden to, well, you know, pay got, for look, play. I, I fucking hate it when journalism <laughs> doesn't have ethics if i could just have like 20 to 25 percent more ethics in my journalism then maybe i would finally buy uh, 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 so now we have to talk about two of the greatest people who have ever lived mike krahulik 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 Mike Microholic and Jerry Holkins, <laughs> otherwise known as Gabe and Tycho of Penny Arcade, a webcomic that has become an empire within the video game industry itself, right? Because of PAX. Yeah, they've got the whole they've things. got the whole uh, convention. Yeah. And and these guys have been like silent on Gamergate. They don't they don't say anything about it. They're not for it. They're who knows? Like whatever opinions they have on it seems to be private. I haven't listened to their podcast. I'm not going to. Maybe they talk about it on there. But like they're not Gamergate guys. They haven't gone like the escapist. They just don't bring it up. But anyway, at some point they develop this beef with Kotaku. I don't know when this happens because like there are older Penny Arcade comics where Tycho talks about how he likes reading Gawker and stuff like that. But in 2015, this article about the blacklists comes out. And so Penny Arcade comes out with this comic. It's an adaptation of the parable of the the scorpion and the frog. Um, and it's called Parabolic. It's actually the second comic that he's called Parabolic as a pun on parable because there was another one about the Stanley parable. So this is wait, the level of writing that we're wait, doing. Wait, how, how is parabolic guys. a pun on parable? That doesn't make Because it sense. sounds sounds kind of the same. Is that sort of like how like the, the opposite same. of convict would be provict? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because pro is the opposite of con. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Thank you for bringing back an interminable bit I did on Facebook in 2015. It was one of my brightest shining moments. Yeah, that was that was, that was dark. That was dark. <laughs> it was good, actually. I'm going to read both the comic and the blog post in the voice that I think Jerry Holkins thinks he writes in. They're two different voices, one for the comic and one for the blog post. So here's the comic. I am really looking forward to hearing this. The parable of the games journalist and the developer and the images of like a Tibetan Buddhist monk and a scorpion sitting on his shoulder. One day, the games journalist asked the developer if they could speak with one another. The developer said, You invent controversy, and you are a teller of secrets. And when you do so, you are rewarded. You know what the opposite of controversy is, by the way? <laughs> Protroversy? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> you, you can't outpace me on this, Josh. I was born in the darkness. You are deeply incentivized to destroy me. That's the first panel, by the way. Remember, lots of text in these. But the scorpion, uh, I mean the games journalist, said it may be that such things were done in the past. If so, that is regrettable. But this time, I won't sting you, or, uh, tweet, or blog, or this whatever. This fucking sucks. This sucks <laughs> so much. And so it was that the developer, in an unguarded moment, told the journalist a truth. And the journalist cried out to all who would listen, I see lots of problems with an unannounced and unfinished game. And the developer said unto him, What the hell, man? And the journalist replied, Sorry, dude. Games journalist. Got a games journal. 
So clearly, you know, Bethesda, one of the largest game publishers in the universe, uh, is the victim of fucking 2015 era Kotaku. <laughs> the teller of secrets. Wait, the, inventor of protroversies. This, like, uh, so, this is so stupid on so many levels. First level being that this, this the, the, the like games media sphere or whatever that is the part of 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 the industry that penny arcade inhabits they are pundits right that's their right. whole their fucking games media. thing and so fine like if you want to point out what you see as ethical lapses on the part of maybe certain specific bad faith operators fine but don't try to turn this into some situation where like the media at large yeah. is like it, 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 <laughs> this it, it, whole it, thing is just absurd this like idea that Bethesda is in any way a party deserving of any grievance in this issue whatsoever or Ubisoft I mean come on so let me let me let me read the blog post from from Holkins there was a period of time this is good I like this voice not even that long ago a period of time in the grand scheme where a kind of collaborative back scratching arrangement was in operation between publishers the developers and the their charge and the enthusiast press. It has not been dissolved utterly, but you can see from the increasing percentage of inline ads for not games that something key has changed. Inline ads for not games? What is he talking about? Like how there's ads on Kotaku for other things. Like I'm on Penny Arcade right now and the ads are for Warby Parker glasses and leather shoes. So it's happened to yeah, them as like well. Yeah, it's like they don't, you, you realize that they don't <laughs> pick who puts the ads on their site, right? Like, yeah. do you know how Google AdWords right. they're, works? They're not even the company that does it. Yeah. Fucking idiot. Couple that with the fact that the real action from a promotional perspective is concentrated in a single scruffily adorable Swede and the spine of the thing is laid bare. I don't even know. Like, this is what he does. Wait, he is just he talking starts about fucking, fucking writing words. Is Swede, is he talking about PewDiePie? Maybe? I don't, who fucking knows, man. man? Again, he just starts writing words and, and, and never actually gets to Fully make a point, as you'll see. Yeah. For years, I could never make heads or tails of the access granted to outfits whose primary contribution is aggression towards either creators or the users of games. On some level, the agents of multinational brands want to be, quote, liked. For business reasons, but also for regular human reasons. But that couldn't have been all of it. I think that was mostly just inertia. These are big ships, and they've been moving in a certain way for a long time. They were like British soldiers lining up dutifully for the war against a guerrilla force. We'll never know why, or when, or even if Bethesda or Ubisoft blacklisted Kotaku as Kotaku claims. You would need a team of PhDs in the Large Hadron Collider to determine precisely how little I value their claims on any topic. Wait, but if he doesn't care, then why is he <laughs> writing this fucking ten gazillion word fucking <laughs> right, right, dirt? Writing this Fuck fucking you! Thing, this fucking thing about about Kotaku. I oh, I just don't care. I just don't care. At all. Shut up! Though, I can understand why a publisher might determine that an increasingly hostile outlet whose business model is, quote, start shit, end quote, might 
not be the best time or money investment. And you may say, but just, and that's all you'll get out because you're going to look down at the floor for a second and really think about it. Why did it ever work this way? Why would you be obligated to spend millions of dollars on something and then place it gently on the black altar of a hive mind cult, bowing as you retreat? The old accord is over. Go buy your games at the store. Do you not understand this is literally the best thing that has happened to you? They don't owe you shit. And now you don't owe them shit. Somewhere along the way, Kotaku becomes the second person in this paragraph. Well, I mean, what, what's this guy? What's the point? Kotaku. What is the point of all um, this? What is this man's point? What is he trying to say? So in this little sentence where he's really not making a point, right? He's weaseling his way into and out of a point is that because Kotaku's blacklisted, they're not on the hook anymore. And it's like Kotaku already knows that. They know that, man. They're just talking about the real reality of the situation in the industry in these articles which is that they're being stifled in their access to certain things because they have given unfavorable things. IGN is always going to get its review copy. And GameSpot is always going to get its review copy because a lot of the times they're really just advertising. And that's what games media used to be. And Tycho is like trying to say almost that, oh, good, we're actually getting away from games media as being advertisements. But he's doing this in a way that denigrates the one outlet that he's using as an example that's not just well, that, shilling that, that's what That's what I like. <laughs> this is so inchoate. Like, yeah. there's no. <sighs> and, and so here's here's his final paragraph which wraps up absolutely nothing but just continues on this weird stream of consciousness. Having been the cowering creature beneath enthusiast media's eye of Sauron on more than one occasion, the object of their tender ministrations, their ostensible populism, and their eerily synchronized perspective, I have no sympathy for these creatures. Which is to say, I have the same sympathy they express for those outside their cloister. You may feel very confident that there are conversations at every publisher now wondering to what extent they are required to eat shit from these people. Tycho Bray out. Again, Bethesda is the victim. They're just so sick of eating shit from, like, the fifth most read American video games outlet. I hated every moment of that, just so you know. Like, that, that sucked so much. So now his problem is that it's enthusiast media, and each outlet is apparently a cult, which just doesn't pay the proper obeisances to the massive corporation releasing these games. Well, and what really ended, I guess, and to bring it back to Prey, like, <laughs> what really happened here is that, again, Bethesda forced Arcane to ship a game that wasn't done yet. They weren't able to put out review copies be, due mm -hmm. to the fact that the game, again, like, they would have had to have been patching it up right until the date that <laughs> yeah. it was scheduled for release to get it into a somewhat playable state. It was released broken so people weren't able to play it um in some cases and along with this the marketing campaign was terrible terrible Th oh there's my um, God. a really interesting article uh that i found by a guy uh whose name is nick Massercola. Uh, i don't know who this guy is but i found his his on his blog right and he okay. talks a little bit about this he talks about how he, he lays out three uh main reasons that it failed it says issue number one is that it failed to capture the game's tone, which is totally true. 
if you look at these uh, trailers, yep. uh, like the the official launch trailer and everything else, it looks like this generic sci-fi survival horror. Yeah, the very first teaser was just the Groundhog Day element at the beginning of the game, which you don't really do. You go through one day, you begin a second day, and you're right, and then you break the, the mirror. The but they game. can't they can't show you breaking the looking glass. And the trailer that comes out on launch day is just a it just looks like Doom. It just looks like it's trying to be an action shooter. Well, rather and than Prey, the original not an action Prey was an action shooter in the vein of Doom, in, in, which which was a game right, that again I right. played back in the day, and I I was like, this is fine. But like I'm not I'm not raring for a sequel to this thing, and mm-hmm. so I didn't like care. No. Um. And then going right to issue two to that same point, right? So they showed off no wow moments pre-release. All of the th- stuff that they showed is dumb and boring. No. Or like looks like incredibly generic gunplay, which it is. The gunplay in the game is not the highlight of the game. It's not supposed to be. Mm-mm. You're sitting on a Metroidvania immersive sim. There are ways to sell that. You know, there was a new Deus Ex game. There are Fallout games, although the, the Bethesda main Fallout games move far away from immersive sim. But like there are ways to sell these games that Bethesda just doesn't do. And again, they're releasing these huge games really close together, right? So you get Fallout 4 at the end of 2015 there and then into 2016 and 2017 you get Wolfenstein 2, Elder Scrolls Legends, uh, Evil Within 2, Fallout 4 VR and Prey. It's a lot of games, it's a lot of big properties and Prey is not a recognizable property out of any of those. It was a launch game from the Xbox 360. It would be like releasing a new Condemned. People don't know Condemned anymore. Even though it was good, even though it sold very well, it's just not like they should have called it Neuroshock or or like something like that. I mean, they probably could there probably would have been a trademark thing with shock but like system shock sells bioshock sells prey on its own doesn't really sell and you can see that bethesda is squeamish about it they don't want to sell you on the game it actually is right they and that's what's so strange to me is that you know similarly they kind of like they never released the demo on pc for some reason which is a baffling to me that's another thing that uh this nick marscolaba guy points out and the people who they did send uh content to were like shitty streamers like like not you know they should have sent it out to people and he 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 put some names right in here of people they should have gone for you know super bunny hop like george absolutely would have fucking loved because that's the kind of game he loves or mm. Aaron signal markiplier those are the guys that yeah. they should have like actually gotten in touch with and they didn't and then uh they were so surprised when the game didn't sell well and then in november apparently it, it went on sale for 20 bucks and the moment that you discount something to that price, it is forever a $20 game. You have set the new floor for your uh, game. Also, at the same time, Doom doesn't really get publicity. Um, if you look at Doom versus Doom Eternal, Doom Eternal has, in its first month on Steam, about twice the number of people, the first week, I'm sorry, twice the number of people playing. In the first month, like overall numbers, it's got about three times the number of people who were playing Doom 2016. It's sold way better. Doom 2016 underperformed didn't underperform enough for them to stop the franchise but it, it did way below their expectations for what they wanted that and game i think to do. this sort of speaks to the point of like what bethesda was or was not able to do and and, and how they they failed to clear adequate lanes for these releases you know like yeah. i don't know you know what led to the microsoft acquisition of zenimax but i have to imagine that like between Doom 2016, which is a great uh, fucking game, Prey, which is yeah. a great fucking game, Wolfenstein 2, which is a pretty good yeah. game. I they they had all of this gold on their hands, and some fucking asshole up in the C suite 
was probably yeah. like, we need to ship all of these games at the same time to hit our numbers for FY17. Yeah. The, 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 the thing is that they they can sell it off of Dishonored, right? They can say, this is the studio that did Dishonored. This is a new game from the makers of Dishonored, and it's in fucking space. Also, they, which they didn't do. They didn't do that. They didn't talk about the fact that Arcane was the developer. Like, what are you doing? No, they didn't. They didn't do that at all. They were they were not like, this is the Dishonored game. They're just like, here's a new game called Prey. Uh, if you don't remember it, then whatever. And if you do remember it, this is actually going to piss you off because it's not a Prey game. <laughs> so, like, they don't get the fans in and they don't get much recognition whatsoever. It, it's a mess. The whole it, It's like this whole thing. And one of the outlets that covers Prey the most, and this is why I knew more about it than, than it seemed like you guys did before you were playing it, was that I read Kotaku at the time. And Kotaku oh, wow. talks about Prey a lot after it comes out but they don't get the early release of it and the the outlets that and the outlets that offered the earliest reviews were all middle of the road right and kotaku probably gave it a good review right <laughs> they probably liked it i bet they liked they it they gave it a good review they talked about things they didn't like in separate articles they did a lot of a lot of you know because kotaku at least at that point liked to do that where they would do like point counterpoint articles next to each other they had a they had a whole series basically on prey and within a year Rafael Colantonio, he leaves, you know, the, after he referred to press sneak fucks in what was probably a bit of a joke, because um, then he goes on Kotaku's podcast the next year and talks specifically about, like, the things in Prey that didn't go as well as he wanted them to. Right. And he, like, hangs out with Jason Schreier on split screen and goes through the game, talks about the things he likes, talks about the things that, that didn't go well. It's not contentious. Um, it's a it's a great interview if you want to learn a little bit more about like how people approach their own games. So like the problem was not there. Well, clearly. the the good <laughs> news I guess uh, for fans of of Prey, of which I consider myself one, is that you know not only did we get Prey, we also got um, Prey Typhon Hunter and Prey Moon Crash. Um, so there's plenty more to play there. Yeah, I would love you know a fully featured brand new complete game in the prey universe i don't see that happening um but we yeah. are going to be getting um death loop later this year which looks pretty cool but it shows you too like you engage in the culture war there's not a guarantee of where you're gonna come out of it you know like i think bethesda at some point started to make a calculation and ubisoft too where it was like if we can antagonize kotaku we'll get the gamergate guys you know, maybe we get a little bit of free press. They accidentally invited one of the Kotaku writers to a Prey event just before it came out and then uninvited him, which <laughs> led to some discussion on Twitter. And it led to all like the Gamergate influencer shitheads like being like, oh, Kotaku got owned, even though it's like, like, think about what they said the mission was early on, where it's like ethics and journalism, games are too much or games reviews and articles are too much like advertisements. And then it's just like, no, we have to own Kotaku because they're SJW libs. <laughs> and it's like you, you, you don't, you don't like you've lost all of that. It's all just become the image. And and because of that, Bethesda actually ends up suffering. They end up not selling what they could have sold. Yeah. And I, I think the thing that is always worth noting about i guess the reactionaries in the world of games and like gamergate guys and stuff like that they there may have been a calculation there like you said like a calculation of okay if we 
tap into this the, the if we do some Kotaku hate bait, uh, <laughs> that's really going to get get people uh, on board with what we're laying down. But the reactionary mind isn't really about thought out allegiances or like getting one over on any yeah. person in particular. What it's about is gravitating toward power and preserving the status quo in a mm. way that benefits the power structures that are already reinforced. So in the case of something like Bethesda, they're not necessarily going to align with the publisher just because the publisher is there. Who they're going to align with is the person who is making the strongest case for returning things to being the way that they ought to be. And I think when you're looking at a game like Prey, which is, you know, it's 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 not a game that is uh, tapping into that like super dumb, annoying, macho like, wow, we're, we're, we're games, you know, we're real gamers, real gamers, real real games, real gamers. <laughs> You're not going to get those people in just by paying homage. Yeah. Or paying, I don't know. What do you want to call it? Like, uh, yeah, it, that, that's not how any of this works. The game industry, t- even 20 years ago, was still very much a an industry where you had one person or two people who could really be the director. But yeah. the days of the director-driven game outside of the indie sphere, it exists, but it doesn't really exist very much anymore. You know, if you if you look at some of the games, yeah. uh, specifically in PC gaming, those games that were the most influential in the the you know 90s and early 2000s and specifically in the world of immersive sims you're going to see the same names come up over and over again and those those are going to be names like um Warren Spector, mm-hmm. Ken Levine, Harvey Smith, you know guys like that. They are going to always be the names that come up over and over again. And th- these people still have uh careers and they're still driving these great projects. But it's not like in the early 2000s yeah. when Ion Storm was able to be in Dallas and give John Romero all of the money that he wanted to do anything that he wanted. And then he made fucking Dai Katana. And so I think that what you ended up having happen as a result of that is that on the one hand, the era of the like gazillion dollar video game director is not a thing anymore. Thank God. But also the baby has gone out with the bathwater. Games have now become, especially at the AAA level, something that has such specific requirements for return on investment and development cycle that you can't just trust a person to get it done when it's done. And that is ultimately, as with everything, capital taking art and just eating it out from the inside. Well, we do love to be eaten out here on the pod. (laughs) I think that's a great note to end this on, you know. Reject video game modernity. Embrace no, video no, game tradition. No, it's never no, come no, back, don't, guys. don't. The golden age will never return because it was never really there. No, it's all fake. Never gonna come back. The the marble statue era of video games never existed. Just like the real marble statue era. I am the worst of all possible Brian's. I am the worst of all possible Josh's, and I hope you have a great time playing Prey. Yeah, space. Space! So many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds.
that's it for today's episode. And if you're an astute listener, you may have noticed that we did not begin this episode with the decadent, whimsical notes of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. Instead, we now have a theme song by TV's own Brendan Dalton. We'll put links to all of the relevant stuff in the description, uh, but he does have an album, Christmas in Middle Earth, that I heartily recommend checking out. It's fantastic. As always, our sponsors are not in any of the bullshit ads that we make for this podcast. Bazooka Gum, Duke Nukem, they have nothing to do with this podcast. Instead, our real sponsors are our patrons at Patreon, including Aeneas Hemphill, Ben Ferber, Benjamin R. Alford, Dominic Russo, Nate Netsley, Octavia Immersive, with a special thank you to Ashley Stoneman and Nicola Donov. Till next time.